Hi everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here, back again with another CHP episode, number 217 this time. Thanks, as always, for listening, subscribing, streaming, or downloading. Well, no complaints so far from any Hokkien communities anywhere, so let's keep going and take this topic to the finish line in this part two episode. Last time we did a nice shallow dive, didn't even need a mask or fins, and we looked at the backstory of Fujian province and its ancient beginnings. I mentioned the Minyue Kingdom and how, during the Qin, Han, and the Jin, and again in the Tang, these ancient Min people witnessed these migrations of Han Chinese from the north to Fujian, among other places. In this episode, I wanted to sort of round everything out with a look at some of the larger and more famous Hokkien communities, which, no surprise, are all in Asia. As I said, the Hokkien diaspora covers the globe, but it's pretty thick in about seven countries, namely Malaysia, Thailand, Singapore, Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, Cambodia, and as you might expect, with a flight distance of 220 miles between Xiamen and Taipei, a lot of Hokkien ended up in Taiwan, too. Let's turn to one of my favorite places, Malaysia. Our story begins on the west coast of peninsular Malaysia in the historic city of Malacca, Maliotia in Chinese. Only 66 miles separates Malacca and the trading port of Dumai in Sumatra, just on the other side of the strait, like Dover and Calais. Such a strategic geographic location, it's no wonder Malacca became the spice trade entrepot that it became. There's an old, well-worn legend from half a millennium ago concerning Malacca and how the Chinese first came to these lands. This is the legend of Hanli Bao. This story began during the 15th century voyages of Admiral Zheng He. I did a three-part series on him in 2012, CHP episodes 92 to 94. Now, a mariner of Zheng He's aptitude would know right away what a nice port Malacca would make and how well this place could serve the Ming emperor's interests. This was in the early 1400s. Vasco da Gama didn't even leave Portugal on his first voyage till 1497. When Zheng He's ships first showed up in Malacca, they were welcomed by the sultan there who explained he was sort of a vassal to the Thai Ayutthaya kingdom to the north. And after taking stock of the situation, Zheng He's ambassadors offered the Malaccan sultan autonomy in return for bowing to the Ming emperor instead. He was happy to get out from under the Thai king's thumb, so he signed on in 1411. Again, just a legend. The sources I read said this was the Yongle Emperor's time, but this sultan, Mansur Shah, his reign came much later. But in any case, Han Lipao was the emperor's daughter, and she, along with an entourage of 500 high-ranking bachelors and a few hundred handmaidens, all made their way to Malacca. And the sultan, as a gift to his new wife, this Chinese princess, built her a villa, called the Baoshan Ting on Bukachina Hill. San Baoshan, water wells still exist there that were supposedly dug in Han Li Bao's time. It's a top tourist spot today if you find yourself in that city. Anyway, this one has legend written all over it. 
But there's no denying that in the early 1400s, the Chinese first came sniffing around these parts of Asia during Zheng He's time, not quite four decades into the Ming Dynasty. These earliest arrivals from China, who came between the 15th to 17th centuries during the Malaccan Sultanate period and after the Portuguese conquest in 1511 by Alfonso de Albuquerque, they maintained their Chinese identity and did not fully assimilate with the local Malay populace. However, considering many of the cool aspects of Malay culture, they sort of pasted those on top of what they already had. These culturally unique people later became known as the Peranakan, or Babanyonya. The Peranakan Chinese were also prominent in Thailand and Indonesia as well. In Mandarin, they were called the Babanyangre. And if you say that in Hokkien, it sounds more like Babanyonya. They spoke a language called Baba Malay. They have one of the most beautiful cultures, especially where fashion is concerned. I mentioned Wellington Ku's fabulously wealthy second wife, Huang Yulan, and she was Peranakan Chinese and dazzled the fashion world in her time with her Peranakan designs. The Peranakan Chinese designers, no matter they were Baba or men or Nyonya, women, they knew how to take the nicest elements of Chinese and Malay aesthetics and combine them into something really unique. Now, because all of Zheng He's seven voyages departed from Fujian, that most all of these people who ended up in Malaysia were Hokkien wasn't surprising. They were sort of the default people to man these voyages from 1405 to 1433. So these Chinese were part of that history. And all those who immediately came after them brought these two beautiful cultures together. And as I said, the Peranakan Chinese came from these 15th, 16th century, mostly Hokkien immigrants. The next big migration of Hokkien Chinese to Malaysia happened during the 1800s and ran to about the 1930s. Most Chinese Malays you bump into on the street came from this group. The Cantonese and Hokkien's both made a beeline for Malaysia right after the founding of Singapore by Stamford Raffles, and that was uh, in 1819. So the 1820s, yeah, this was a boom time, just as Chinese labor was utilized to lay down those tracks in the American West and make the transcontinental railroad a reality. It was the same thing in Malaysia, except in Malaysia, it was the tin mines and rubber plantations that acted like a magnet that drew so many Hokkien there. The Malay Chinese population is roughly 25%. That makes them the second largest overseas Chinese community in the world after Thailand. The Hokkien are spread out all over East and West Malaysia. The Hokkien language spoken varies somewhat from place to place. It's not a one-size-fits-all language. It's constantly evolving. Aside from their dominance working the rubber plantation jobs, they were also great traders and engaged in all manners of import, export, as well as the wholesale and grocery biz. The Hokkien in Malaysia were the kings of the Dian. These were dry goods stores that sold all kinds of stuff. If there was a Zahua Dian, you can bet the owner traced his ancestry back to southern Fujian. 
And because of their dominance in Southeast Asian trade, the Hokkien language became the regional lingua franca for centuries. You know, Gu Yanwu, a 17th century geographer and philologist, said, quote, The sea is the farming field to the natives of Fujian. And that was about as true as can be. That was, I guess, one of the hallmarks of these Hokkien or Hoklo people. The way they embraced this whole notion of taking to the seas and traveling to lands unknown and engaging in trade with the melange of merchants from ports stretching as far as men dared to sail. Whereas the Hokkien may dominate in Malaysia, in Thailand, the champions are the Diochus. 50 to 60 percent of the Thai Chinese have ancestors who came originally from eastern Guangdong, namely the Chaoshan region. Hakkas are a very distant second in Thailand, with Hainanese, Cantonese, and Hokkien rounding out the breakdown. So the Hokkien are in Thailand as well, but do not make up the most populous Chinese linguistic group, although I guess in Phuket they do. That's a Hokkien Chinese stronghold in Thailand. They came to that island paradise in the 1800s to work the tin mines there. Did you know the word Singapore comes from the Hokkien pronunciation of the Mandarin Xinjiapore? As soon as Singapore was established in 1819, the British spread the word in the direction of Malacca and other Chinese communities in Malaysia. Oh, it wasn't called Malaysia back then, but you all know what I'm talking about. And they came to the Lion City by the thousands, mostly from Malacca, but other places as well, Hokkien included, intrigued by the prospects of this new British colony, Singapura. The British had done the same thing before when they were just getting Penang off the ground in 1786. Malacca was a reliable reservoir of Chinese labor and talent. The Chinese had been one of the keys to Penang's prosperity, so the British were keen to repeat this success down in Singapore. And the Hokkien Chinese of Singapore? There isn't anything they don't have a hand in. They moved on from the grocery and dry goods stores and also got into commodities trading, finance, banking, shipping, agribusiness, and manufacturing. Some of the biggest fortunes stretching from Burma to Taiwan were made by Hokkien tycoons. As in Malaysia, the Hokkien's also comprised the largest group of ethnic Chinese in Singapore, Diochus in second place, and most Hokkien Singaporeans can trace their roots back to Changzhou and Quanzhou. And in the beginning, all these different groups of Chinese all congregated in various neighborhoods according to the dialect they spoke. It was like a string of Chinatowns, all specialized in one subculture, Hokkien, Hakka, Cantonese, Diochu, and others as well. And in every city where critical mass had been reached with the population, the Hokkien people of that community would open a huiguan, where the community could meet and have a kind of a, kind of a headquarters in a way. The Hokkien have long been present in Indonesia. The Dutch colonial period is when the floodgates opened and the Chinese began arriving in large numbers. They were not strangers at all and had been sailing to these islands since the time of Kublai Khan and, of course, during the time of Zheng He's voyages. Who came to Indonesia first? The Hokkien's. They were the first Chinese to explore opportunities in Indonesia and dominated the scene into the 1850s. 
Others followed them, the usual ones you might expect, Teochew, Hakka, Cantonese, Hainanese. As far as South Sea trade, no one was better positioned geographically in all of China than the inhabitants of southern Fujian and Guangdong province, who wrote so much of the overseas Chinese history during those centuries. A lot of Vietnamese can trace their ancestry back to southern Fujian province, and two Vietnamese dynasties were founded by Hokkien's. If you recall from that China-Vietnam relations six-part series, the founder of the later Li dynasty, 11th century, was Li Tai To. And the Zhen dynasty, 1225 to 1400, their founder, Zhen Tai Tong, the ancestors of both of these founding emperors, came to Vietnam from southern Fujian. They were among the many who migrated down to northern Vietnam and, over time, melted into the Vietnamese pot. Over in the Philippines, the Hokkien overwhelmingly formed the largest group of ethnic Chinese. They weren't there first, however. Chinese traders and adventurers had been sailing down to the Philippines since the Tang Dynasty, at least. Cantonese pirates and traders were already present in the Philippines when Magellan came and declared that land for Spain and promptly got himself murdered. After this Spanish colonial period from 1565 to 1821, that's when the Hokkien started arriving. 19th century, and late 19th century at that. And it's not like they clustered themselves in a Chinatown and didn't mix with the locals. They left Fujian, came to the Philippines in search of opportunities, and just like in Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, and everywhere else they went, they blended into the population. Some, of course, more than others. But over the generations, everyone was better off. And as I said before, the Hokkien language spoken all over the world varies. Hokkien from place to place have all kinds of local ingredients and flavors that make their particular way of speaking it slightly different. In the Philippines, they too have their own version of the language. Philippine Hokkien has the Minnan language as a base, and it's interlaced with a little bit of Tagalog and a little bit of English. And speakers of this language collectively know it as Zanonghua, or Our People's Speech. I was in Manila recently and got a taste of it for my first time. It's not like anything I ever heard. A working knowledge of Mandarin doesn't come in handy in trying to understand Zanonghua. I read there are eight tones in Hokkien, but really seven, and arguably six. The ancient Minyue, who we spoke about last episode, spoke an Austronesian language, a family of languages stretching from the western Indian Ocean, Madagascar, to Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, Micronesia, Polynesia, and New Zealand. There are arguments about Hakka or Hokkien or Teochew being the languages that most closely sounds like the Chinese that was spoken way back in the time of the Western Jin, 4th century thereabouts. Uh, not unless we go back in a time machine can we know for sure, but this is a very big field of study in China. There's a lot of heated arguments about this claim. These dialects, like Hokkien, Teochew, Hakka, and so many more, sadly, they're dying out. Everyone knows it and everyone laments it to some degree or another. When you stop and think about it, it's pretty sad. It's like an animal on the verge of extinction. There's a chance in a few more generations, perhaps no one will be speaking these languages. And think about how long-lasting they've been. 
If Hokkien and other major dialects of Greater China do survive for generations far in the future, it sure will be a miracle. In modern times, there have been more attempts to stamp out the use of Hokkien than you could shake a stick at. Starting in 1937, during the half-century of Japanese occupation, the Japanese launched the Kominka movement in Taiwan, the Huangminhua Yundong. Hokkien was banned from use, and very vigorous measures were taken to enforce this. At the same time, the older generation in Taiwan had to take up Japanese as a new language. As for the younger generation in the schools, instruction was given in Japanese. In general, from 1937 to 1945, all kinds of measures were taken in Taiwan to suppress Hokkien language and culture. And then after World War II, when the KMT set up their government on Taiwan, they did the same thing, only not as bad. They forced the Taiwanese to learn Mandarin instead, and all public schools taught in Mandarin. It's not like everyone stopped speaking Hokkien, but this didn't do anything to help keep that flame alive. 1956, Chairman Mao, too, he demanded of the people, stop speaking these fangyan, or dialects, in the schools and make sure only Mandarin is taught. In 1962, over in Myanmar, the new Burmese government forced Hokkien Chinese citizens to speak only Burmese. Hokkien was discouraged and suppressed. And if the local Hokkien knew what was good for them, they better not be so conspicuous with their Hokkien language and ways. 1965, 30 September movement, the year of living dangerously in Indonesia, a failed coup, all blamed on the PKI, the Indonesian communists. This is when Suharto came to power. In addition to a bloody anti-communist purge, the Indonesian authorities leaned hard on the local Chinese populace in Indonesia. They were guilty by ethnic association. Following this watershed moment in Indonesian history, Use of Chinese was banned in schools, and Chinese Indonesians had to lay low and put many aspects of their culture away in a safe place for appreciation sometime at a later date. Again, this didn't do much to help keep the Hokkien language alive. 1979, the Singapore authorities threw a log on the fire by launching the Speak Mandarin campaign. Again, suppressing the use of anything but Mandarin, but of course they didn't stamp it out. But these kinds of Government-organized and sustained measures, they didn't help keep these languages like Hokkien alive and certainly don't do anything to promote it. The following year in Malaysia, same thing. Speak Malay campaigns were organized. 1982, there was an effort by the Singapore government to discourage Hokkien in the workplace. And two years later, in 1984, parents were discouraged from using Hokkien with their children. And who can forget the 2000 campaign in the PRC that told people, speak Mandarin, and don't be so uncivilized speaking these local tongues. So when many who are part of this great diaspora spread out all over the world decry the way their language is slowly, slowly disappearing as each successive generation loses the enthusiasm a little bit more than the preceding one. Once this momentum is lost, everyone knows what happens next. It's too terrible a thought to ponder. Hokkien, Teochew, Hakka, you name it. There are crusaders 
around the world who are getting out there and using the World Wide Web and social media to fan that flame and not only keep this heritage alive, but even try and grow it. But as I said, all these government-backed attempts to get people to stop speaking their local dialect over the years, it starts to work after a while. Hokkien are particularly respectful of Tiangong, same person as the Jade Emperor, a.k.a. the Yu Huang or Yu Di. If you forgot who the Jade Emperor was, don't get him mixed up with the Yellow Emperor. The Jade Emperor is one of the earliest Chinese gods, and of course very mixed up with Taoist theology. But the Hokkien's revere him. You see, his birthday is the ninth day of the first lunar month. Hokkien all over Southeast Asia, including the Peranakan Chinese, Chinese Buddhists, and of course Taoists, all mark this date in their calendar. Part of the ritual that's carried out on this date, the Jade Emperor's birthday, it involves setting up a three-level altar. It would contain things like vegetables, noodles, fruits, cakes, tangyuan, unripe beetle, and it might be decorated with paper lanterns, Part of the ritual also involves the household kneeling before the altar three times and kotowing nine times to wish the Jade Emperor long life. Why this affinity for the Jade Emperor? Well, there's a story behind that. Back during the Ming Dynasty, Japanese pirates and other bandits had invaded Fujian's coast, robbing and terrorizing all the villages. While the China government attempted desperate measures to deal with this plague, the farmers and their families ran from these marauding gangs of bandits by hiding in the sugarcane fields. And there, cowering amongst the sugarcane, they prayed to Tiangong for safety and deliverance from this plight. And miraculously, on the ninth day of the first month, the Jade Emperor's birthday, the bandits gave up looking for everyone and abandoned the coast. This is one reason why the sugarcane plant also has special status with Hokkien. Besides its symbolism for good luck and vitality, the sugarcane plant is also remembered for this legend of southern Fujian. And pineapples, too. I read the word for pineapple. When you say it in Hokkien, rhymes with the words prosperity is coming. Wang Lai. Actually, there are all kinds of variations of Bai Tiangong stories circulating amongst Hokkien people the world over. This is just one of them. And Kaxinga, Cheng Chenggong, he's another Hokkien hero. He's been mentioned before. He's the Ming Dynasty loyalist who refused to give up after 1644 when the Manchus snuffed out the last dynasty ever to be ruled by Han Chinese. He kept the fight going for years from his Taiwan base before his descendants decided later on to throw in the towel. He got that Kaxinga name from the Hokkien pronunciation of the Mandarin Guo Xingye. I mean, I use the anglicized version. Don't use me as a guide on how to pronounce anything in Hokkien. Or Mandarin, one could argue. You know, I'm only scratching the surface in my meager attempt to introduce the Hokkien people to you. I'd really be amiss if I didn't mention at least a couple Hokkien calling cards. The cuisine of Fujian didn't make the top four from olden times, but they are counted among the Ba Da Cai Xi, or the eight great cuisines of China. Hokkien food and Taiwan food, eh, same thing more or less. 
Here in La La Land, I noticed a few new Taiwan joints opening up around town. In all the great Huarenchu in the San Gabriel Valley, Roland Heights. Now, I wouldn't bet my life on this, but I feel safe in opening myself up to all kinds of yelling and abuse. In saying that Hokkien Mi has got to be the signature dish that best represents traditional overseas Hokkien cuisine. It is, I dare say, one of the icons of Hokkien culture. The word mi, M-E-E, means noodles. Mien in Mandarin. Hokkien mi is one of the many great dishes of Malaysia and Singapore. One of the benefits to living in L.A., besides all the time I could listen to podcasts while sitting in traffic, is the plethora of joints where I can get a nice dish of Hokkien mi. We got more than 20,000 hawk yen in this city in the smog. I could get it any time. There are two types of hawk yen mi. Hawk yen char mi, or fuzhou chao mian, which is the stir-fried version, and the Penang style hawk yen ha mi, xia mian, which has an unforgettable spicy prawn-flavored broth. Unlike most noodle dishes that use one kind of noodle, Hokkien Mi uses a combo of both egg and rice noodles. If you go to 10 different places, you'll get it 10 different ways. But the basic ingredients are the same. The taste and presentation varies from place to place. Hokkien Mi is sort of just a generalized term to describe this dish. The essential ingredients, besides the two kinds of noodles... Bean sprouts, garlic, pork, pork lard, prawns, especially the shells, if you're doing it Penang style, eggs, fish sauce, and a nice dark soy. And once you have stir-fried all that and fix yourself a plate or a bowl, it's always garnished with some chili, or sambal as they call it over there, and lime. I'm partial to the fried version. The Penang style... That's the soup noodle sort, and the secret to that version is all in the broth that comes from the pork and prawns. You don't have to go to Penang to get it. I used to have it all the time in Hong Kong, too. Yeah, Hokkien char mi and Hokkien ha mi, those are two big ones. And Hokkien fried rice is another, Fujian chao fan. Now this dish, you can get almost anywhere. Even run-of-the-mill Cantonese places usually carry a version of this, although I can't vouch for the authenticity. The thing about Hokkien fried rice that sets it apart from all the rest is that it comes with this thick gravy that gets poured on top of the rice. That's the key ingredient, the gravy. Shrimp, chicken, carrot, mushroom, tomatoes, soy, oyster sauce, cooking wine, sugar, cornstarch, and sesame oil. Did you write that all down? Yeah, you mix that all together and pour that magical Hokkien gravy, that job, that's Hokkien for jir or juice, gravy, whatever. You just pour it all over the fried rice and egg. Telling you, you'll never order Yangzhou chao fan again. And let me just say, there's more than one way to fry that rice. You'll have three different experiences depending on whether you're eating it in Xiamen, Changzhou, or Quanzhou. Besides these icons, there's also rogu cha, meat bone tea, bakute, in my mangled pronunciation in Hokkien. This is another famous and popular dish associated with the Hokkien people. But there's also Dioju and Cantonese versions. It's a broth with lots of spices and 
seasonings loaded with pork ribs. Enjoy it with or without youtiao and a cup of tie guan yin tea. I could get roku cha here in LA at any number of places, but you'd probably have to go to Singapore or Malaysia to sample la version más auténtica. Well, the list of Hokkien Ming Tsai goes well beyond these few dishes. You know, Fujian restaurants aren't as plentiful as the other regions. There's only a few here. And of course, a lot of Chiu Chow places. Because Hokkien and Teochew are so close in many aspects of their culture, plus geographically, being next-door neighbors, of course, there's a lot of overlap in terms of Hokkien and Chiu Chow cuisine. The roster of famous Hokkienese to grace the annals of Chinese history, and of course in business, science, government, education, sports, and pop culture, as my president says, is huge. A few notables you might have heard of, Lin Yu Tang, the 20th century literary great, the famous actress Michelle Yeoh, Hokkien, the Song philosopher Zhu Xi, one of the most famous relics of the Canton system, Wu Bingjian, a.k.a. Haokua, former Singapore PM, Go Jok Tong. And over in the Philippines, there's Sergio Asmeña, Jose Rizal, and Mrs. Corazon Aquino, to name a few. <laughs> Don't get me started. There's so many. So let's close things out for now. I'll leave you with just one last tidbit to take home with you. There was one other food item that we could thank the Hokkien for. In its original form, this food, or actually it's a condiment, it tasted nothing like we know it today. This condiment, it was a kind of sauce. The key ingredient in its earliest incarnation was guijer. A gui was a kind of fish. The Hokkien pronounced it in a different way. It sounded more like ge. And jir, I just mentioned a second ago, means sauce, juice, dressing, gravy, that stuff. In Hokkien, Cantonese, and other dialects, jir is pronounced jap. Again, don't quote me on those tones. This sauce was something the earliest Hokkien traders stumbled upon down in the southern part of Vietnam. It wasn't even part of Vietnam back then. And these Hokkien merchants would trade up and down the Mekong River. And from these folks down there, they had this unique sauce that sure tasted good with a lot of different foods. This mystery sauce was good old nook mum, or fish sauce, nam pla in Thailand. And this sauce from this ge fish, or however the Hokkien pronounced gui yu, they started to call it ge sauce, or ge jap. And these Hokkien traders mixed it with other ingredients and brought this sauce to all points in Southeast Asia. And as far as the Philippines, Indonesia, and Malaysia, they flipped for it. And of course, adapted it to their own tastes by adding different ingredients. Anchovies, for one. And in the 17th century, when the British came exploring around the South China Sea, and they got their first taste of this sauce, they went even crazier. And when they brought it to their American colonies, oh, the future Americanskis started doing backflips. They loved it so much. Now, we know this gejap today as ketchup. Before they started adding tomatoes much later on, there were other ingredients. The word in Cantonese for tomato, coincidentally, is also pronounced similarly to the gui character from guiyu. So tomato sauce was also pronounced, in Cantonese at least, as kejap. 
the tomatoes were added in the early 1800s. But prior to that, this Hokkien-inspired sauce that got its humble beginnings on the Mekong River, it first used mushrooms as the main ingredient. But it evolved over the centuries from this fishy, pungent sauce into the stuff we know and love today. True Blue Heinz ketchup? It didn't come around till 1876, and the taste we are familiar with today sort of got stabilized in the early 1900s. So all you good people, next time you're enjoying your chips or fries or tater tots, fish sticks, or 48-ounce porterhouse, think of the Hokkien people from centuries past who gifted ketchup to us all. Well, the original recipe, at least. And with that, me little beauties... I'm going to insert the old proverbial bookmark here. Laszlo Montgomery signing off from the City of Angels in my brand new state-of-the-art recording studio. Really, you wouldn't believe it if you saw it. Join me next time, if you can make some time, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.